Uh, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 16. And let's begin by reading this passage together. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 16. The Apostle Paul writes, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things, has God, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts, except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God, except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. If you've spent any time under my ministry, then I think you already know that one of the things that I like to emphasize is the cost of following Christ. Honestly, I imagine it might get a little irritating at times or perhaps even depressing. At times it probably sounds like I'm saying it's a burden to follow Jesus. That being a Christian is all suffering and toil. And of course this isn't true. There is tremendous joy to be had in Christ. I think anyone who's counted the cost and made the choice to surrender all for the sake of Jesus and who's done so under the direction of the Holy Spirit, they'd tell you that it's worth it. That they'd rather have what they've gained in Christ than what they've given up to follow Him. And I really do try to make this point as often as I can. I try to do what I can to show you the beauty and the glory of God and the joy that's found in knowing Jesus Christ. Still, I know I probably tend to emphasize the cost of Jesus more than I do the rewards. But I hope you understand the reason I do it is because I think very few people stumble over the rewards of the kingdom of heaven. After all, they're, they're rewards, right? They're benefits, they're blessings. People naturally want that. I mean, realistically, who would turn down the offer of eternal life? Who would, in their right mind, say, no, I don't want that? No one. You'd have to be sort of crazy to not want to live forever. So I don't think that's what keeps a person out of the kingdom of heaven, the rewards. No, it's the cost. Yes, the rewards are free, meaning they're earned. 
or they're, they're not earned, rather, they're given. And yet that doesn't mean it's not without a cost. Jesus reiterates this point over and over again. There's a price a person has to pay to follow him. Only it's not the giver who exacts that price. It's not God who makes the Christian pay. Rather, it's the Christian's own sinful flesh. And it's the sinful world they live in. Again, the gifts are free. God gives them without price. And yet there are forces at work in this world to prevent the Christian from accessing those gifts. Their own sinful flesh, the present world order which the Scripture says is ruled by none other than Satan himself, these stand in opposition to the Christian and try to prevent him or her from accessing these gifts. And the result is that if the Christian is going to gain access to these gifts, then they're going to have to fight for it. They're going to have to pay. And ultimately, that's what people tend to stumble over. It's not the gift. It's the price a person has to pay to receive it. Take the account of the rich young ruler, for instance. Uh, the kids have just, uh, they've been covering this lesson over the past couple of weeks in Sunday school, and so that's been one of our topics over breakfast lately. And of course, in that account, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus asking him how to receive eternal life. Jesus tells him he has to keep the commandments. The rich young ruler says, I've done that. And then Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, why does Jesus say that? Is it to show this man his need for salvation by revealing his covetous heart? Is it to show him that he hasn't actually kept the law, that he's actually broken the very first commandment? Sure. No doubt there's an element to that. He, Jesus wants to reveal the ruler's sin. But I'll tell you, I think there's another element to that demand as well. It's a very practical one. And that's the fact that if this man makes the decision to follow Jesus, then there's a very good chance it's going to cost him his possessions. Again, that's not a price that God is going to make him pay. It's one that the world is going to make him pay. You go into the book of Acts, for instance, and there are some very clear statements that indicate that wealthy Christians are allowed to keep their wealth in God's eyes. That's not something that he demands from them. And yet that doesn't mean that they will keep their wealth. And that's because although God is okay with letting them keep their money, the world at times is not. Not only did these early Christians sometimes suffer legal persecution, a persecution that sometimes resulted in the forcible seizure of their property, we learn in Hebrews 10.34, but they also suffered a dramatic loss in the kind of social status that would allow them to conduct business and maintain or build their wealth. This would most especially be the case for a man like the rich young ruler, who by all accounts would appear to be a very prominent Jew. Just ask the Apostle Paul what following Christ did to his status among the Jewish people, right? I mean, he went from being Israel's favorite son to public enemy number one almost overnight. It was often his own countrymen who caused him the greatest amount of affliction. The reality is that if a guy like this, this rich young ruler, follows Jesus, a man this prominent among his people, he's going to probably end up in jail 
He's going to lose everything. And so Jesus tests his resolve right off the bat. He wants to know, are you willing to pay the price? Are you able to finish what you start? And of course, unfortunately, this man is not. The text says he leaves incredibly sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He wanted eternal life, but not so badly so as to lose the things he loved. His own sinful flesh, his idolatry, and the world ultimately conspired together to prevent this man from entering the kingdom. And at the end of the day, it was simply too much. It was a fight this man was unwilling to win. In context, Jesus goes on to discuss the rewards that come with following him, with his disciples. But again, that wasn't what made the rich man stumble, was it? It wasn't the rewards, but the cost. Again, this is why I focus so much on the cost of following Jesus. It's because I understand how very hard it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yes, God gives salvation freely, and in that sense, it's very easy to enter the kingdom. It's so easy, in fact, that all you have to do is ask. But listen, the resistance you'll face to enter, the resistance you'll face to even enjoy the blessings that are daily given by God to His people freely, that resistance is so fierce that you will pay dearly to enjoy them. And of course, I want you to enjoy them. I want you to receive this incredibly rich inheritance. And so I talk about the cost, but I talk about it not to discourage you, but to exhort you to fight, to push back when you encounter resistance, and to keep pushing, to pay the price so that you can enjoy the riches that are found in Christ, because they are so very much worth it. And it's with this thought in mind that we now turn our attention to 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 16. Once again, there is a cost that comes with being a Christian. And that cost very often comes in the form of rejection by the world. Sometimes that rejection is expressed in a literal persecution of Christians, like what the Apostle Paul experienced. But more often than not, it's much more tame. The Christian isn't thrown in jail for their faith. Instead, they're perhaps mocked or insulted for it. Maybe it's not even verbalized. Maybe it's not even expressed. Perhaps the Christian only gets the proverbial cold shoulder. Basically, they're ostracized, excluded from a particular community because of their beliefs. Even still, it's a price the Christian must pay. And it's one they feel. I think it's important to note this. I know it's a bit in vogue lately for Christians to point out how little we actually suffer for our faith here in America. And of course, that's true relatively speaking. We have it incredibly easy as American Christians. The kind of suffering that we experience doesn't even come close to approximating the kind of suffering that our brothers have and sisters have experienced throughout history and who, uh, what they're even experiencing throughout the world today. I think it is important to keep that perspective. But, as one of my old bosses used to remind me, 
Perception is reality. Meaning in this instance, it doesn't matter whether or not a Christian really is experiencing some intense form of suffering for their faith. What matters is that it feels intense to them. You can say it's no big deal all you want. It doesn't change the fact that it's still a big deal to them. And they need help. I think this is where many American Christians live today. They recognize that, relatively speaking, they have it pretty easy, that they don't actually suffer persecution. And yet it still hurts when they're rejected for their faith. Sometimes this rejection happens because they're sharing their faith, they're evangelizing. They're telling people about the foolish message that we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks, and, and they're being treated as foolish in return. But again, I tell you, more often than not, it's probably happening simply because of how they live. The fact is, we're kind of weird. Or at least we're supposed to be. If you're doing it right, there are going to be some elements about your faith that seem odd to outsiders. And when that happens, it's not uncommon for people to think to themselves, hey, that's kind of weird. And then distance themselves from the Christian, if not outright mock them for their faith. It's very normal in that circumstance for the Christian to experience doubt. They may start to think to themselves, you know, am I stupid or something? Is that the reason why I seem to be so different because there's something I don't get, something I don't understand? Others might respond by trying to show the world how they're not weird. They'll change things up, begin to adopt practices that are culturally acceptable, and they'll do this in order to win some measure of acceptance by the world, in order to say to the world, see, I'm not weird. We're really not so different, me and you. But how should we respond when we find ourselves in this situation? This is a question I think Paul addresses in this morning's passage. Over the past several weeks, I've explained that Paul opens this letter by defending his ministry. Well, this defense of his ministry is really stimulated by some questions that have been brought to Paul's attention. We'll see this later on in this letter, starting in chapter 7. Paul is going to say, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And he's going to start addressing these questions that have been raised by the Corinthians. Before he gets there, though, he needs to prepare his readers for his answer. This is why he's defending his ministry. It would seem that in the interim between Paul's second and third missionary journeys, the Corinthians have started to have some second thoughts about Paul's teaching. They're not quite sure they agree with what he's taught them. And even more than this, they're not quite sure his teaching is authoritative. And so before he can begin to address these issues, he's determined that he first needs to set the record straight regarding his ministry. In this morning's passage, the attention now begins to shift. Paul is still defending his ministry, only now instead of focusing the attention on himself and explaining why he ministered the way he did, he now begins to address the Corinthians and their way of thinking. Basically, Paul is transitioning from defense to offense. And he does this by addressing some of the underlying concerns that have led to this rejection of his ministry. You see, it would appear the Corinthians were not so different from you and I. In fact, I don't know if you remember, but I actually introduced this letter with a message entitled, 
to the church of God in America. And that's because the church in Corinth and the church in America are really not so different. The Corinthians lived in a religiously and culturally pluralistic society. It was just incredibly diverse on a number of different levels. And not only that, but it was a city that was built on the notion of economic and social advancement. Corinth was a place where people would sometimes go to try to make their break in the world. It was sort of like the Los Angeles or the New York of our day. And this meant that it was also an incredibly competitive environment. In fact, you know how they sometimes say of New York, if you can make it there, then you can make it anywhere. Well, there was a similar saying in Paul's day with reference to Corinth. It was, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. And what this proverb was apparently saying was only the tough survive there. Not just anyone can make it in Corinth. You add to this competitiveness the pressure to conform to what you might call the, a secular society. You add to this competitiveness the profession, uh, this pressure to conform, to embed yourself into the social network of this society by supporting its cultural and religious institutions. And you can see that the situation facing the Corinthians was not unholy like the one that you and I are facing today. This is not a church that's suffering persecution for their faith, but they are still feeling the pressure to conform. The only difference, I think, is that this pressure is coming less from outside and more from inside the church, meaning that far from trying to resist the world, this church appears to be enamored with it. The world isn't even trying to pressure them just yet because it hasn't needed to. It hasn't had the chance to do it because they've surrendered themselves so freely. I like the way one commentator puts it, and again, I, I refer to this quote in our first message on the letter, but I mention it again because I think it, it, it uh, describes this situation so aptly. Describing this situation here in Corinth, this commentator says, Although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them, emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery without killing the patient. That's the situation that Paul is facing when he writes. And now as we come to chapter 2, verses 6 through 16, he begins to go on the attack and to address some of the underlying concerns and attitudes that have given rise to this questioning of his ministry. In the process, I believe he gives us three truths to consider when we start to encounter rejection from the world. Again, these are three truths to consider we begin to feel this pressure either to doubt our faith or conform to the world's expectations. Again, these are three truths to consider when you begin to feel this pressure to conform to the world's expectations. And this week, we're going to look at just the first truth. And that's this. Consider the type of wisdom you received in Christ. When you feel this pressure by the world to conform to its way of thinking, consider the type of wisdom you received in Christ. We see this point in verses 6 through 8. Paul says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, 
which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The key word in these verses is that, is that first word, yet. It's actually a very common word in the Greek. Uh, it's day. It's what's called, that's what's called a coordinating conjunction. A coordinating conjunction, of course, connects or coordinates two ideas. However, this particular type of coordinating conjunction doesn't just connect two ideas, it contrasts them. Hence the translation here, yet. And the idea is that Paul is continuing to expound on an idea, but he's doing so by making a contrast between this point and his previous one. In context, Paul has been talking about the foolishness of the cross, how the message of the cross is regarded as completely ridiculous by the world's standards, and how God even planned it this way. Well, with this yet, Paul now indicates that he's continuing that conversation, but with some kind of contrasting modification. What that modification is, is fairly obvious right off the bat. Paul says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. There's your contrast. Paul doesn't want his readers to think that he's saying that the message of the cross really is foolish, but rather that it only appears foolish. He's already done this uh, in part back in verse 18 of chapter 1, when he said, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He makes this contrast between these two different groups, each of which have a different reaction to the message of the cross. Paul does the exact same thing here. The only difference is that whereas last time he spoke of the cross being the power of God, here he starts to refer to it as a kind of wisdom. Again, there's a contrast here. And the idea is that he doesn't want people thinking that he's saying that the cross is actually foolish. Only that it appears that way to a certain type of person. Again, I tell you, this is where Paul starts to go on the attack. It's where he transitions from defense to offense. Remember, the, the Corinthians apparently think Paul is the unsophisticated one. I've explained, Paulus came into Corinth after Paul's departure with this incredibly eloquent presentation. He was incredibly powerful in his argumentation. The scripture even tells us that he was able to successfully refute some of his fellow Jews in public. Uh, the Corinthians are likewise incredibly gifted in the speech gifts. It would seem that God has so richly blessed this church with the very sort of gifts that would insulate them from the philosophical and spiritual influences of this culture that the result is, unfortunately, the Corinthians have started to become a bit conceited. After seeing Apollos ply his trade, they're starting to think that maybe there's a deficiency in Paul's ministry. Maybe he's not as intelligent as they first thought. And then they're looking at themselves and they're seeing their own great understanding and they're starting to think that actually maybe they've started to surpass Paul. Again, you might think I'm crazy making this up that I'm talking uh, just again crazy that no one would be so arrogant as to think they've surpassed the Apostle Paul in their understanding. But this is going to be especially evident when we get to chapter 4. There's this point where Paul is going to remark sarcastically 
Already you have what you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share this rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You're held in honor, but we in disrepute. It would seem that some of the Corinthians have even taken to this notion that the reason why Paul suffered the way he did was because of his unsophisticated approach to ministry. If he was only smart enough, if he could only present Christ in a way that people could relate to, in a way that wasn't so offensive, then they could, like, like they could, then he wouldn't have to suffer the way he did. They simply didn't understand this idea that God means to save through weakness, through foolishness. Sort of fascinating, isn't it? How ignorance so often breeds arrogance. But it makes sense because the one who's truly ignorant is actually too stupid to realize what they don't know. They're so uninformed that they can't even perceive their own ignorance. And so thinking they've arrived at perfection, they ironically look down on those who actually do understand. Again, that's the situation facing the Apostle Paul. The Corinthians have become conceited in their understanding. They think that Paul can't keep up when the reality is that they're the ones who don't get it. Paul is out in front in this race and he's actually so far ahead, they think they're in the lead. And so after Paul explains that the cross is supposed to be regarded as foolish, he says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. And just so you know, there's actually some sting in this. It's just not apparent yet. The word for mature here is the word teleos in the Greek, and it means something like perfect or complete with reference to people. And in this context, it's going to refer to someone who is fully grown or advanced in one form or another. It's someone who has arrived, so to speak. If you're thinking in terms of wisdom and schooling, then it's someone who's graduated. They've received their diploma, their certificate of completion. And in context, that's, in context, that's significant because at the end of this passage, Paul is going to say, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a human way? See, the Corinthians are complaining about the fact that Paul's teaching seemed so simple. What Paul is saying here is that part of the reason why his teaching seemed so simple was because he was talking to simple people. Again, there's some sting to this. The Corinthians think they've surpassed Paul. And Paul is saying, actually, the problem is that I couldn't get into the more advanced stuff when I was with you because you hadn't completely grasped the basics yet. You weren't ready for it. And by the sound of it, it would seem you're still not ready for it. I think this is somewhat significant to understand the flow of thought in this passage. The, the we in this passage doesn't appear, to be, uh, uh, doesn't appear to be a reference to Paul and the Corinthians or to all Christians generally. It's a reference, rather, to a group of teachers in the church. Specifically, it appears to be a uh, reference to the apostles and to those who are cooperating with the ministry of the apostles. 
Likewise, the, the spiritual person that we're going to encounter at the end of this passage, that's not just a reference to all Christians generally. Rather, Paul is using it with reference to himself as one who is controlled by the Spirit. You can see this because in uh, verse 15, he says, The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. And then later on in chapter 4, he's going to say, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. The judgment that Paul has in mind here is the Corinthians' judgment of his ministry. Their uh, decision that his ministry is inferior. And Paul is telling them, your judgment doesn't stand because although you have the Spirit of God, you're not acting that way. He's telling them, the reason why my ministry seems foolish, the reason why it doesn't seem to make any sense, is because you're not thinking spiritually. You're not submitted to the control of the Spirit. You're still acting fleshly. In the same way, the mature in this passage. That's not a reference to believers as opposed to unbelievers. A person is not mature in this context simply by virtue of the fact that they believe the gospel. No, the mature in this passage refers to that subset of believers who are able to receive the more advanced teaching. Again, the Corinthians think Paul foolish that not just the style, but the content of his ministry is simple and unsophisticated. Paul's telling them that's partly because the message itself is foolish, but honestly it's because you're still too immature for me to cover the more advanced stuff as well. And this is all build up to what Paul is about to cover later on in this letter. Remember, the Corinthians are going to have these questions about things like the practice of divorce and the exercise of Christian liberty. They're going to ask about the proper order of the corporate religious service and the appropriate use of spiritual gifts. Friends, this is the more advanced stuff that Paul is talking about. It's the information that he hasn't covered with them yet. And he's giving them a heads up right now. It's more than possible that some of this might sound weird. The counsel I'm about to give you may not make sense to you at first. In fact, if you're thinking with the same sort of mental framework that you had with you before you came to Christ, if you're thinking according to the same set of values that you had before you became a Christian, then this is all going to sound incredibly backwards and even foolish. But if you have the right foundation, then this is going to make sense. This is going to be wise. Among the mature, this isn't foolishness, but wisdom. They will understand why I say these things and receive my instruction. All in all, it's reminiscent of a passage that we covered not too long ago in the book of Philippians. If you remember, Paul shares his approach to suffering with the Philippians, uh, the kind of thinking that allowed him to endure suffering with such great success and patience. And at the end of this discussion, he says, chapter 3, verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Paul lifts himself up as a model of maturity and says, if you're mature, then you'll think like me. And that's what he's doing here also. He's telling the Corinthians, if you can't follow with what I'm telling you, it's because you aren't mature yet. You lack understanding. 
In short, Paul is telling the Corinthians, if you don't understand me, if my way seems backwards or foolish to you, this is why. So what's his answer? Why might the wisdom that Paul is imparting seem foolish to the Corinthians? And the reason is because of the type of wisdom this is. It's because of the type of wisdom this is. If you look here, Paul describes this wisdom in two ways. First, he explains that it's a wisdom that is, quote, not of this age or of the rulers of this age. You see this in verse 6. He says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. And then he takes it a step further in verse 7. He says, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. This is the second way that Paul describes this wisdom. He says it is a secret or hidden wisdom. In fact, you could maybe even say that he describes this wisdom three ways, because he notes that this is a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Meaning this is a wisdom that proceeds from God. Now, what he means by this, we'll get into greater detail next week. For the moment, I just want to focus on these first two characteristics, and that's the fact that this is a wisdom that is not of this age or of the rulers of this age, and that it's a secret or hidden wisdom. What does Paul mean by this? That this wisdom is not characterized by being of this age, and that it's a secret and hidden wisdom. Well, first, he's saying that this is a wisdom that does not proceed from the present world order. This ties into that third characteristic I just referred to. Just as Paul is saying that this is a wisdom that comes from God, when he says it's the wisdom of God, meaning he's using of in the sense that it proceeds from God, it's God's wisdom, so also is this not a wisdom of or from this age or the rulers of this age. The idea is that this is a wisdom that does not originate with, neither is it promoted by the social and political power structures of the earth. This is incredibly important to keep in mind. Remember, the Corinthians are coming out of a society that's enamored with the concept of social status. That's not just true of Roman society generally, but Corinth itself was basically rebuilt for the express purpose of giving restless Roman freedmen an opportunity to establish themselves in the world. So this town, most especially, was dominated by the idea of acceptance, of being approved by, of being accepted by the power structures of their society. Right here, Paul tells them, the type of wisdom I preach is not promoted by those power structures. What's interesting is how he phrases this. He says it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. Twice he associates this notion of wisdom with this age. And then he notes regarding the, the rulers, he says they are doomed to pass away. More literally the phrase could be who are being uh, uh, who are being abolished. It's, it's present tense, and it's pointing less to their death and more to their impotence, their powerlessness. 
I think the, the CSB captures that phrase very well. It says that they are uh, who are coming to nothing. In other words, Paul presents this wisdom in eschatological terms. Eschatology, of course, refers to the study of the end times. That's how Paul frames this wisdom. He presents it in light of Christ's return. One of the great themes of the Scripture is the kingdom of God. In fact, I think there's a strong case to be made that it is the theme, the core message of the Bible. That's really where the Bible begins and ends, with God ruling over the earth through mankind. It's a story about how God's rule over the earth was thwarted by man's sin and how God intends to restore that rule through Jesus Christ. And within that story, you have this attempt by man to exert a rule over the earth that is fashioned not after God and his values, a rule which is performed not after the image of God as man was designed, but according to his own image. And this rule is partly represented in the form of human government. This is where Israel enters into the story. Man attempts to create a name for himself at Babel. God therefore scatters the people, uh, confuses their language, and that gives rise to the first nations. And out of these nations emerges Israel, who God sets aside to be the kingdom that will uniquely represent the will of uh, his command over the earth. This is where the, the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments enter in. Israel is given the law of God because they will live under God's rule, according to his customs and values, in opposition to the rest of the nations who essentially live under the influence of false gods and demons. Throughout the Old Testament, God predicts that he will one day crush this present world order, this alternate set of values, and that he will do it through a specific Davidic descendant. The Old Testament tells us that this descendant will destroy the other nations of the earth, thereby nullifying their power and establish Israel as the supreme nation over the earth. Basically, the kingdom of God, the reign of God, will be established through the exaltation of the nation of Israel. This is the first thing that Paul is saying here. He's saying that this is not a wisdom that originates with or is even promoted by the power structures of the present world system, since this system actually stands in opposition to God and is even doomed to be judged by God. And again, I think it's important to keep this in mind here. He's not only referring to the gospel when Paul says this. That's not the only thing he's thinking about at this point. Again, in context, he's talking about the message of the cross specifically. That's what's regarded as foolish by the world earlier in chapters 1 and 2. Here he's starting to expand that notion of wisdom, though, and speak not only of this foundational knowledge, but even the more advanced doctrine, which is the application of the cross. You get into this notion of kingdom, of rule, and you're starting to talk about values of right and wrong, of how a person is supposed to live, what set Israel apart. For instance, was the law they had received from God. I think of Moses' words to Israel, Deuteronomy 4, 7 through 8, when he says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? This is what made them different, what made them uniquely God's kingdom. They were governed by his covenant, his system of laws. 
When Paul says that he imparts a wisdom that is not of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, he's contrasting their rule with God's rule. And that entails the coming of a kingdom that is ruled and ordered by God. Guys, this is going to be a recurring theme as we go deeper into this book. In chapter 6, for instance, Paul is going to talk about the idea of lawsuits. And he's going to ask the Corinthians why they're turning to secular judges to settle their disputes, saying, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? In chapter 7, he's going to tackle the subject of marriage and divorce. And after he advises Christians to remain in whatever state they're in, whether married or unmarried, he's going to explain his answer by saying, for the present form of this world is passing away. In chapter 10, he's going to address the issue of participation in idolatrous practices by asserting, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Even the, the, this whole section on corporate worship that we're going to hit which is the largest single discourse on public worship in the entire New Testament. spans from chapters 11 through 14. That section is all about ordering the corporate worship service according to God's priorities, according to his system of values. Paul is telling the Corinthians that these kinds of values are not going to be found in the current world system that they're actually even contrary to the values espoused by the present world order. Again, this isn't to say that he's abandoning the idea of the gospel just yet. The gospel is going to be foundational to these values. In fact, in chapter 3, I think when Paul says that a person has to be careful about how they build on his foundation, I think this is what he's talking about. He's saying the message of the cross that he preached is foundational to the hidden wisdom of God. And so if a person is going to try to teach the church and move on to the meat that they're craving for. If they're going to move past the milk, get into the meat, then that man needs to be careful that what he teaches is still built on the original foundation, not something else. Indeed, even right here, Paul observes that none of the rulers of this age perceive this system of wisdom, since if they had, quote, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. So clearly the gospel is definitely foundational to this system of wisdom, because Paul is saying that if the world was able to perceive this wisdom, then they would have accepted the message of the cross. And yet I think it's very clear Paul is talking about more than just the cross at this point. He's talking about the entire system of Christian thought, including its customs and its values. The world, he says, doesn't espouse these things. And the reason it doesn't espouse these things is because of this second point about this wisdom, which is that this is a secret and hidden wisdom. Meaning, and I want you to listen to this very closely here, because I think what I'm about to say is going to sound very familiar to many of you, and it may sound so familiar, in fact, that you're prone to brush it off, but I doubt you think very much about the significance of this idea. This is incredibly shocking, not only to our modern sensibilities, but I think to our spiritual ones as well. Again, the reason why the world doesn't espouse this wisdom is because it's a secret and hidden wisdom, meaning they can't perceive it 
They can't find it. Indeed, they're blind to it. Again, depending on your theological persuasion, that may not sound too shocking to you. So let me translate that for you. Translation, this is not objective wisdom. At least not in the sense that truth is able to be observed by all people through detectable, perceptible phenomena. This is objective in the sense that this is universally true for all people. But it is not objective in the sense that it can be observed. In that sense, it's actually very subjective. This is why the rulers of this age don't promote it. They don't promote it because they can't perceive it. Not only do they not think it up, but they lack the capacity to even discover it. Again, it's a hidden and secret wisdom. Now, of course, I think this very naturally raises a couple of very important questions. Such as, why is this wisdom not discoverable? Which I think there are several different answers to, depending on what you mean by why there. Uh, you're probably also wondering, if this truth isn't discernible through detectable, observable phenomena, then how does one find it? And there's a lot to talk about there. And so we're going to get in the answers to those questions next week. And of course, as we do that, we're going to spend some time discussing how the answers to these questions should affect the way you interact with the world when we begin to feel this pressure to conform. But before we do that, I, I just want to take a moment to pause and really reflect on the significance of this idea, of this type of wisdom that we've received in Christ. And in particular, I want you to consider two points. First, I want you to really think about the fact that this wisdom is not provable. Meaning, if you're anything like me, I'd imagine you probably start to get a little nervous right now. And for some of you, I'd expect this notion of a, a secret and hidden wisdom makes you nervous because you think it impugns the character of God. After all, what this notion says is that it's not within someone's capacity to know this truth on their own. That's going to be Paul's point in a few verses from now when he starts talking about the, quote, natural person and how they can't perceive this truth. He's saying that people are born without the spiritual capacity to see this wisdom. And depending on how you conceive of the love of God and how you think that's expressed in salvation, that could be problematic for you. But I'll tell you personally, that's not what troubles me, not at this point in my Christian walk. No, what sets off alarm bells for me is the fact that since my youth... I've been taught that the way you know something is true is if you can verify it. It's when you can test it, prove it. Paul is saying here that this kind of wisdom isn't like that. Again, it's a secret in hidden wisdom. And once again, if that's the case, then this raises the question, how does one come to know it? And I'm not going to try to answer that question for you just yet, but suffice to say for the moment, the idea is that there is a sense in which this is a subjective kind of wisdom. Meaning you can't necessarily prove the sort of wisdom to the world. That's important to note for a couple of reasons. The first is the fact that this immediately makes our system of belief foolish to the world. 
Like we've been talking for a few weeks now about how God means for the gospel to seem foolish for the, to the world. Well, this point right here is part of what contributes to that perception. Allow me to illustrate. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Why? Because the Word of God says so. That doesn't make any sense. Prove it to me. No. Guys, that sort of an answer probably doesn't fly with the world, does it? It's expected that if you want me to believe something, then you need to show me. And yet, based on what Paul is saying here, I think that's actually the correct way of handling that. And I would just point out, not only is that the correct answer, biblically, but it's actually a very good one as well. After all, if I'm saying the Word of God is the ultimate authority for truth, then you can't legitimately expect me to appeal to any outside source of authority for proof since that would make that the authority for truth instead of the Word of God. So that answer actually does make sense logically. And not only that, but this notion of uh, truth, that all truth is provable, just simply isn't true. For example, you could say to me right now, I'm happy. And I could say back, prove it. And I don't think you could do it. You could try, you could smile at me or something, and I could just say back, well, you're faking it. Anyone can force a smile. It'd be very difficult to do. And that's because happiness is not a quantifiable or measurable reality. It's very subjective. And yet I doubt any of us in here would deny the existence of happiness or that you are happy because of that. In other words, to, to say, no, I'm not going to prove this, that's a defensible position. It's defensible not only because something can be true without it being proven, but by definition, you can't logically prove an ultimate sense of authority. But that said, simply saying it's defensible is not the same thing as saying it's provable. And this is where the difference lies between you saying you're happy and me saying the Bible is the Word of God in the world's eyes. It's been said, extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. I'll accept your claims to happiness because people are happy all the time. I've been happy before, been quite frequently actually. I've shared that subjective experience. It's very common. And not only that, but your claims to happiness don't really make any demands of me. Probably doesn't affect my own personal happiness at all. And so because of that, I accept your claims because I don't have any reason to question it. But if you suddenly said to me, I'm happy because I just won the lottery, now I might start expecting some form of proof. Because to win the lottery is an extraordinary claim. That doesn't happen every day. That's what's happening with us in the world. We're saying a guy rose from the dead. And we're saying that on the basis of that resurrection, they need to submit to his authority. Now we've got two strikes against us. We're making an extraordinary claim, and we're making demands of the other person based on that claim. They're going to want evidence for that sort of a claim. The problem is that Paul is telling us here that it doesn't exist. That this type of wisdom doesn't work like that. Do you understand even the miracles... Right? I mean, you take the miracles, right? And people say, isn't that presented as evidence to our claims? But the whole point behind a miracle is that they're not repeatable. They defy human control or explanation. This is partly why God uses them as evidence to demonstrate the futility of human understanding. 
So you know what's going to happen when you come to the world making these extraordinary claims and then they ask you why they should believe and you say, well, because God said so. Thus saith the Lord. They're going to laugh at you. They're going to say this is completely ridiculous. And this leads us to the second reason why it's important to consider this point, which also happens to be the second reason why I want you to pause and reflect on the type of wisdom you've received. And that's the fact that if you adhere to this system, then your way of life is going to look foolish to the world. And there's actually very little you can do about it. At the beginning of this message, I said that when Christians feel rejected for their way of life, it's very normal for them to respond one of two ways. Either they'll start to doubt their faith or they'll try to demonstrate to the world that their faith actually isn't so strange after all. This particular answer is aimed more at the second group. I'll deal with the doubt group next week. If you're in this second group, the thing I want you to consider and understand is that what Paul is saying here is that your way of life is going to look foolish to the world and there's really nothing you can do about it. There's no argument that you can use to make your way of life wise or good in their eyes. And that's because of the type of wisdom this is. Again, it's a secret and hidden wisdom. Again, the rulers of this age do not promote this system of values. And the reason they don't is because they can't perceive the wisdom of it. They can't understand it. Again, there's more to say about this, uh, but if I could put it this way, there are some keys to the puzzle uh, that they're missing. There are some pieces that they don't have that's keeping them from seeing the full picture. And that's going to consistently make your way of life seem incomprehensible and foolish. Listen, I'm telling you this now. I'm taking the time to tell you this now. Because as we get further into this book, Paul is going to make some assertions about how the church is supposed to act in this age. And I'll just tell you right now, many of these conclusions are not culturally acceptable. They're not PC. It's the kind of stuff that unbelievers try to bring up to embarrass Christians. And I'm telling you this now because when we get to those passages, and I tell you what the passage says, if you're wired like this, you're probably going to want to ignore what I tell you or maybe argue with it, if only in your head. And that's fine. You're free to evaluate for yourself what the text says. But when those moments come, I would encourage you to consider, am I pushing against this because I don't think it's in the text? Or is it because I'm feeling pressure to make my way of life conform to a certain set of cultural expectations? Because if it's the second reason, then you need to recognize that as a Christian, it can't happen. There's no middle ground where we can meet with the world and hold to our beliefs while still garnering their respect. Of course, that's not to say that everything we do will be seen as ridiculous. There are going to be points where we happen to agree. Rather, what I mean is that there are also points where we, where we will be seen as ridiculous. And when that happens, there's really very little we can do to dress that up. Again, you may think I'm exaggerating or that I'm being an extremist or an alarmist, but just wait till we get to chapter 4. Because it would seem that the Corinthians thought this was Paul problem, Paul's problem. 
that he simply lacked tact. And again, Paul is going to emphasize the point, tact had nothing to do with it. If you're a Christian, then you'll be regarded as foolish at some point. There's no way to avoid that. Again, I know it probably sounds like I'm saying all this to depress you, because that can be sort of depressing to think about. But it's like I said at the beginning of this morning's message. That's not why I do it. I do it rather because there is a cost to following Jesus. And that cost is where people tend to stumble on their way into the kingdom. That's what often prevents them from experiencing the fullness of the blessing of God. I want you to experience that. And so I tell you this to encourage you to fight. To resist those who would resist you. So that you can enjoy the great benefits that come with living under God's rule and reign. My closing prayer this morning is that God would fill, uh, the God of hope would fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you would abound in hope. Let's pray.